Chapter 9 Coronary, Coronary Care I called to see how your father was doing. Mark Clark, a friend who lived in Virginia, was on the phone. It was March 1979, and I was standing in the kitchen of our house in Ohio. My father? I repeated woodenly. What about my father? The Chrysler Museum in in Norfolk, Virginia, where Mark was a curator, had been about to mount a Philip Guston exhibition, he told me. David McGee had just called to cancel the show, saying that my father had suffered a massive heart attack. God, I'm sorry, Mark said. I can't believe you didn't know. I called my mother, letting the phone ring and ring. No answer at the house in Woodstock. Maybe they were out for dinner. Maybe, but no. Two more phone calls, and I knew what Mark had told me was true. My father was a patient in the coronary unit, coronary care unit at Benedictine Hospital in Kingston, New York. I had a- I asked to speak to the nursing station there and was told that my father that morning suffered a second serious heart attack after his first three days before and was now in critical condition. There was more, the nurse said. Her voice sounded irritated. My father was agitated, delusional, and disturbing the other patients in the coronary care unit. I hung up and walked into the bedroom. I sat there on the bed, shaking. Three days ago? It was intolerable that I couldn't be there immediately with him. Surely I could do something, anything. I dialed Woodstock again, listened to the phone ring and ring then slammed the receiver back in its cradle. Looking back on it now, I can see that it was just as well I couldn't reach my mother at that moment. I was beside myself. Why hadn't I been called? Didn't they care how I felt? Didn't she realize how important this was to me? But I knew perfectly well why my mother hadn't called. We were trying not to worry you, she would say, if I pressed her. We didn't want to burden you with our problems. Oh, yes, I knew all about my parents' exaggerated sense of privacy, the way they guarded their lives against intrusions, and that I was not supposed to feel slighted by this. Sorry. And that I was not supposed to feel slighted by this. It had only to do with my father's need to work the same old story but I did feel slighted I had never resigned myself to the fact that I could be seen as an unwelcome intrusion there had been other serious illnesses these past years often I found out about them only months later by prying information from my mother I suppose I seemed very remote to them living seeing Sorry, I suppose I seemed very remote to them, living 700 miles away in Ohio. And yes, 
Some part of me was always relieved to find out after the fact, relieved to have escaped the usual filial tasks, the demands and obligations most of my friends labored under with their aging parents. But I hated being in this state of vigilance, this perpetual worry that something terrible would occur without my knowledge, and now it had. One thing seemed clear that night. They didn't need me. They were always devoted. There were always devoted people in the wings, students, friends, people ready to lend assistance. No, it was just as well my mother wasn't home at that moment. I would have railed at her, and she didn't need that, not then. There were no more flights to New York from Dayton or Columbus that evening. I would have to wait until morning. It would be late afternoon by the time I got to Kingston. I stood there over the half de- hef- I stood there over the half-empty suitcase, trying to pack, unable to think of what I might need to take with me. Finally, after repeated calls, my mother was at home. Her voice trembling, she told me how the heart attack had happened. My, mo- my father had been on the phone talking with Mercedes Matter, an old friend, when it began. Abruptly ending the conversation. Maggie, good morning. What is it? <laughs> she puts her head on the pillow. Mwah. I'll see you in a minute. I'm recording. <laughs> she does this every time. Holy mackerel. Mal- Molly's... How does she go, go rest? <laughs> this is an aside, obviously. <laughs> Molly's here too, but she never makes a sound about it. Okay, you want to be on my shoulder? Here. All right. Feel better now? You silly cat. Okay. She wants to be part of it all. Let's see, where am I? Sorry. We're into a heart attack and we're talking cats here. Sorry. Ugh. Her voice trembling, she told me how the heart attack had happened. My father had been on the phone talking with Mercedes Matter, an old friend, when it began. Abruptly ending the conversation, he had staggered into the kitchen, vomited into the sink, and collapsed unconscious on the floor. The emergency squad had taken him to the hospital. From the way she spoke of my father's condition, in the most indefinite of terms, it was clear that she didn't understand what a heart attack was exactly. Or how bad it, ha- or how bad his has had been. How did he seem now? I asked. What did the doctor say? She wasn't able to tell me that either. At least not in any detail. I wondered what they had told her. Sensing her fragility, had they withheld information, or had she simply forgotten? Hear- hearing the only slightly submerged panic in her voice, I tried to be as comforting as possible. Since her stroke two years before, my mother's short-term memory had become very poor. She had difficulty with words, particularly with names, and with grasping the meaning of events and their consequences. It was worse worse when she was tired or upset. This This wasn't only the stroke, though. My mother had always been a tender-hearted and innocent woman who wept easily, 
who would shrink away from anything to do with pain or illness. In a way, she, in a way, the stroke had only exaggerated her natural and rather sweet vagueness of temperament, while her poetic response to life, her love of unusual gesture, the odd detail, had been retained. I don't see why they have to keep him in that dreadful place, my mother said tearfully. I mumbled something about how they probably had to monitor his heart, but I knew what she meant. My father was a chronic insomniac. He easily became stir-crazy. Once, visiting me in New Haven, unable to sleep, he had insisted they leave to drive back to Woodstock in the middle of the night. If a single night in a guest room made him claustrophobic, I could un imagine how imprisoned he must feel in a coronary care unit. I remembered hearing something about an abortive visit to James Hopkins, sorry, Johns Hopkins Hospital in Baltimore for a checkup a year or two earlier when my father had signed himself out after the first few days of new of tests and fled back to Woodstock undiagnosed. Maggie, you're going to have to move because I can't be in this position like this to read. Yes, you have to move. Silly girl. Okay, I wanted, I wanted to be there with him, yet I dreaded seeing him robbed of his vitality and privacy. Out of context, out of his studio and away from his work, my father might lose that patina of greatness he wore so well, that sense of being larger than life, and become just another sick and frightened old man. I need not have been afraid of that. If anything, the opposite was true. Even now, after all that has happened, the same ideal, heroic statue of a father still manages to stand somewhere in the center of me. But more, more pressing than my fear of seeing him weak and helpless was another stronger impulse, something more elemental. I just wanted to be with him. I wanted to touch him and be touched by him before he died. My father's bed lay at the end of a long line, painfully circuitous and slow to unfold, a line that began in the cold, wet March dawn in Yellow Springs, Ohio, and extended all that next day across the flat grays and browns of Ohio, Pennsylvania, New Jersey, then up through the drab winter bearded foothills of the Catskills along the New York Thruway, finally into the city of Kingston, the hospital corridors to my mother's pale face, latticed with worry as she walked behind me in through the twin doors that said, quiet, please. What a paragraph that is. The beds in the coronary care unit of Benedictine Hospital were arranged like spokes in a wheel around a central nursing station. Harsh fluorescent lights spread their white glare on the banks of monitors, the white beds, the chrome equipment. Human sounds were overtaken by the clicking, beeping machines. A frightening place calculated for efficiency. Maggie, goo goo. 
<laughs> Other patients looked up at us as we passed. My mother hung back as if she didn't want to approach him. It was my turn. At this last moment, I became afraid again. After coming all this way, I wanted to leave. My father's bed was cranked up as high as it would go. With the side rails up, the bed looked like a big crib. I looked at the form in the bed. The bulk of it seemed seeming both large and insubstantial at the same time. Maybe it wouldn't be my father, I thought. But then I recognized the unmistakable shape of his big feet, and I knew that it was. I approached the bed. His wrists were tied with strips of cloth to the two side rails. Angry tears sprang into my eyes. They had put my father in restraints? As I approached him, he began thrashing weakly, moaning something unintelligible. I took him, I stood over him for a few moments, unable to speak. Philip, I said finally, it's me, Ingi, I'm here. I took his hand, which was hot and dry, and he quieted, his eyes seeking, then focusing on my face. He said my name thickly and tried to smile. I could hardly bear it, seeing him like this. Convinced that I had to be strong for him, for my mother, I stood there fighting my tears, looking down at him. His, co his color was a ghastly gray-green under the cold white light. Wires emerged from nipple-like circles glued to his hairy chest, hairy barrel chest, leading to a cardiac monitor that made uneven green zigzags over his head. My father had for years combed a large growth of hair over the bald place on the tr crown of his head. This mostly white plume of hair was wild now and stood out from his head on the pillow in a sad, long tuft. His deeply set eyes were dark and glittering with fear. He began mumbling something about Nazis and interrogations. As he tried to speak, his tongue lolled in his mouth as if it didn't belong there. This from the Thorazine they'd given him when he'd begun to hallucinate the day before. Leaning on the side rail of his bed, holding his hand, I tried to understand what he was telling me. I forgot to be afraid as I tried to piece together what he was saying. From what I could tell, he wasn't delusional any longer. He knew where he was. He knew why. He seemed, in fact, to have a much firmer grasp on his condition than my mother did. He reported with more fascination than alarm, it seemed to me, his remarkable experience of the night before. SS officers had come for him, he said. He remembered their polished black boots, the click of their heels. When I told him this had been a hallucination, he said, really? He thought about this for a minute, then looked at me sheepishly. Do you really think so? I nodded. Why did they tie you up? I asked, touching the cloth that bound his wrists. I think I tried to fight. I remember kicking one of them, he said, with a small bad boy's smile that was incredibly heartening. I was trying to get out of here, he said. I looked around at the chrome and glass and tile, at the stupid half-length shower curtains that were supposed to provide privacy. 
I don't blame you, I said. There was a weak pressure of the hand. Oops, sorry. There was a weak pressure from the hand that still held mine. I'm so glad you're here, he said, and closed his eyes. After a few moments, after a few hours had passed with no further incident, the nurses, seeing that he had calmed down considerably, agreed to untie the restraints and to call me that night if my father became agitated again. When I left him, he was sleeping quietly. By the next morning, the more obvious effects of the Thorazine had worn off. His speech was no longer thick, and he seemed less drowsy. I waited outside the CCU while the cardiologist examined him, then waylaid the doctor in the hall and asked my father's, for my father's condition. Did his dour face usually carry such a gloomy expression? It's too early to tell. After this last episode, the, fa- the doctor said, he lifted his eyes from the floor. You must realize your father is very weak. Very weak. I knew the doctors often spoke in code, that the meaning was there if I cared to recognize it. What was he saying? My father still seemed so full of life. Even in that dreadful place, I could feel the force of his intelligence. Like my father, and unlike my mother, I have always hungered to know where things stand. Some people prefer not to know how serious an illness is, leaving a grim prognosis hazy and indefinite allows for hope. They'll actually say they don't want to know. I've never understood that. I always find myself imagining the worst anyway. The truth is usually a relief. I wanted to know exactly what the doctor meant. I glanced at my mother who was sitting nearby. Since I had arrived, she allowed me to handle things, giving me her trust in the same childlike way she permitted my father to make most of the decisions and plans in their lives. Now she was sitting there on a bench in the hospital hallway, letting me talk to the doctors, too. I lowered my voice. Yes, how bad is it? The doctor shook his head. It doesn't look good. His heart has suffered a tremendous insult. I looked at him levelly, waiting for him to finish the sentence he'd, he'd let trail off so delicately. He didn't. Shouldn't he know? I finally asked. No. I don't think that would be wise, he said, frowning. He's had quite enough stress as it is. I'd want to know if it was me. Look, let's just hope for the best, shall we? The doctor said, putting his arm hand on my arm. I've asked for a psychiatric cons- cons- I've asked for a psychiatric consult. I trust that's okay with you and your mother. I nodded. What made him hallucinate like that? He shrugged. Hard to tell. People sometimes lose their sense of reality in the CCU. Tell me, how much was your father drinking, Mrs. Mayer? I, I, I don't really know. Not that much, I think. Why? There's a good chance he may be suffering from delirium tremens. I knew he drank to calm his nerves and relieve pain. He preferred treatment when his ulcer bothered him. His preferred treatment when his ulcer bothered him was a glass of vodka and milk. Come to think of it, while we sat and talked, my father was usually drinking something with, from a jelly glass. 
and there were refills, too, repeated trips to the pantry where the liquor was kept. I tried to think back, to remember. I, I had never seen, I had never even seen him drunk, or had I? The truth was, I had never seen him acting drunk. Out of control, tearful or belligerent, slurring words, falling down or passing out, none of the conventional signs. But I had worked with drug abusers. I knew enough about addictive behavior and alcoholism to know that all drunks didn't behave that way. Could it be maybe alcohol was actually causing some of his awful swings of anxiety and depression rather than providing relief? One thing was certain. I didn't like thinking of my father as a sick man. Not this kind of sick. In his studio that evening, I looked at his paintings. It wasn't as if he had hidden anything. The signs were clearly there. I simply hadn't wanted to see. In The Desire, painted only the year before, a fist lies on a high red wall, clenched as if to avoid clasping the highball flask beside it. And Head and Bottle, from 1975, has his lima bean-shaped head with its enormous all-seeing eye glaring down fixedly at an empty green bottle. When I opened the kitchen cabinet my parents used for their medications, there were bottles and bottles of pills meant to help with anxiety and insomnia. Librium, Valium, Secanol, Dalmain. Now, years after my father's death, when I tell Norman Berg, the internist who treated both my parents for years, that I'm writing about my father, he stops examining my mother and gets a distant look in his eyes. Yeah, he was quite a guy. He sighs and shakes his head. Remember when he had the DTs? That took me completely by surprise. I knew he took a drink now and then, but I had no idea. No idea, did you? I shake my head. I guess he had us all fooled, Dr. Burke says. Hearing this now, I feel vindicated a little, but at the time I remember feeling shocked and guilty, as if I could have done something I had not, it, had I known. I glanced at my mother. I could hardly blame her, but someone should have been, but someone should have seen what was happening. Someone should have been able to do something before it came to this. I looked at the cardiologist, then stared at the floor of the hospital corridor. I guess I could try to find out from my mother how much she was drinking. I ventured doubtfully. Why don't you do that? The doctor said. After he left, I sat down in the hallway on the bench beside my mother. The doctor says Philip is very weak, I said. Oh, excuse me. A crowd of chatty candy stripers passed by in the hallway, silencing us with their cheerful banter. We sat there without speaking until the elevator doors had closed on them. I didn't tell my mother anything more. She didn't need to know my father was close to death, I reasoned. Why face it unless she had to? And why should I upset her with questions about his drinking? She wouldn't be able to tell me anything. 
For all my training, it never occurred to me that I was retaliating against her for having withheld the news of my father's heart attack. Ten minutes of every hour, they let visitors into the CCU. When the next visiting period came around, I told my father there was a chance he might not recover from this second, more serious heart attack. That the next day or so would tell the story. He listened with his eyes closed, then looked up at me and began to weep silently, tears welling up and sliding down his cheeks into his ears. I want Kadish. I want Kadish said for me, he whispered. It's very important. Tell Musa. There are three men I want to say Kadish for me. Do you understand? I nodded. The three men were Morton Feldman, Philip Roth, and Ross Feld, the three dearest and deepest friends of his life. But my poor dear Musa, he murmured, what will happen to her? Thinking of my mother brought fresh tears. I tried to reassure him that I would take care of her as best as I could. In the few minutes that followed, there were other instructions, too, about what he wanted done with his work. After what happens to Mark, he said, I don't want anything like a foundation. I never knew what to do about it. Vaguely, I knew what he was referring to, at least that the Rothko Foundation scandal had been a nightmare for everyone involved. Of all my father's contemporaries, Mark Rothko had been the most obsessively concerned over the way his work was exhibited and sold, and that obsession had led to the forming of this foundation. It was painfully ironic. Knowing how little I understood of Philip's life in the art world, and sensing perhaps the role that I might be called upon to play, when he died, my father educated me that day in the coronary care unit making me privy for the first and only time to his intentions. This conversation was something I've been grateful for many times since, in moments of doubt, in a weak voice pausing frequently for breath. He made sure I knew about the people he trusted, about their loyalty to him. When I left him that day, I was sure I had done the right thing, but as it turned out, my father's stamina and tenacity had not abandoned him, after all. To the doctor's surprise, he made it through that day and the next. By then it appeared that the immediate danger was past. Strangely, he seemed better able to deal with the imminence of his death. Perhaps all those years of reading Kafka and Kierkegaard and thinking about death had prepared him for it. Those next days and weeks then those next uh, here's one of these hyphenated sentences <laughs> haven't had too much trouble with that in the past let's see it's long let's see it's the whole paragraph is sort of this way hyphenated let's see strangely he seemed better able to deal with the imminence of his death those next days and weeks than than he was with the continuing continuation of his life with his body's long ongoing and progressive betrayals with all the petty indignancy indignities and humiliations a hospital stay was bound to exact from him 
So the real sentence is with all the rest of it. <laughs> Sorry. Uh, let me try it again. And then I'm going to stop and go on to the next segment. Okay, strangely, he seemed better able to deal with the imminence of his death. Perhaps all those years of reading Kafka and Kierkegaard and thinking about death had prepared him for it. Those next days and weeks, then he was with the continuation of his life, with his body's ongoing and progressive betrayals, with all the petty indignities and humiliations a hospital stay was bound to exact from him. I don't know if I read that right or not. It is what it is. And that's the end of this first segment of chapter 9. Illness and death had been much on my father's mind since my mother's stroke in 1977. His painting had taken a decidedly more somber and personal turn since then. Image after image of mortality filled his work. Rising black or red tides threatened to drown. The heads that managed to keep barely afloat were unmistakably those of my parents. Sometimes they were, they were entrapped in elaborate spider's webs. Still, other paintings showed them huddled in bed together. As he began to recover, it became increasingly difficult for my father to tolerate the atmosphere of the coronary care unit, especially the loss of dignity and privacy. Once I came in to find him sitting on the bedside potty, glowering. The constant harsh lighting and noisy machines, the chatter of nurses and the groans of the other patients, and the occasional episodes of cardiac arrest were deeply upsetting to him. He continually complained of being able to, unable to sleep. As he became stronger, he became a fractious and difficult patient, demanding, complaining, arguing. arguing. Though he could barely stand by, though he could barely stand up unaided, he begged to be released. He refused their food. At first, the nurses treated him with an amused tolerance. But then, as he became harder to deal with, they began to show a condescension toward him, as if he were a child. Finally, there were moments of outright hostility. One day, a new nurse sailed in and with a flurry of efficiency. And how are we today, she asked breezily. We are terrible. We are dreadful. We would like to get the hell out of here, my father muttered, fixing her with his baleful glance. I wished I watched the nurse's brittle smile harden. Is there anything I can get for you, Mr. Gustin? She, she asked. A nice stiff whiskey and a cigarette would be fine. Her face became serious. Oh, now, you know I couldn't do that. My father let his head sink back in the, on the pillow. Then just leave me alone, he, he whispered bitterly. When my mother and I were there, when I, sorry. Let's see. When my mother and I were there, he was calm enough. 
But when we weren't, the nurses had no time to make my father the center of their attention. They had other sicker patients there now, patients my father was disturbing. I was used to making allowances for my father. I had learned to excuse his dark moods, his self-involvement, his unpredictability, as the necessary foibles of his genius, in my mind at least, and in my mother's. My father was exempt from ordinary standards of conduct. And there was usually a greater or lesser degree of worshipful worshipful adulation going on when I had occasion to see my father with other people. By turns, by turns loquacious, witty, and philosophical, he was accustomed to, ten- to attention. Students clustered around him, awaiting words of wisdom, collectors were fascinated with his stories that's what I was used to seeing how people in the hospital reacted to my father came as a shock to me here he was at his worst ranting and raving at the poor hospital staff who were no better no worse than any other other such staff at times inattentive and frustrating at other times surprisingly considerate and they were treating him exactly as they might anyone else who gave them problems. I tried to intervene. Couldn't he be moved to a private room? Well, yes, they said. His heart could be watched through telemetry, telemetry, telemetry that broadcast an EKG signal down the hall to their monitors. But he had to have someone with him at all times. My mother and I assured the nurses we would be there. We began spelling each other at the hospital, taking turns spending the nights as well as days there on a small sprung bed that folded up into a hassock by day. My father slept, but I didn't. I don't know if my mother did. What I remember is lying awake in that hot, airless hospital room, listening to his groans and snores. At least once a night, nurse would co- a nurse would come in running, come running in, concerned. In his sleep, my mother, my father had dislodged one of the several EKG leads attached to his chest. It made for an exhausting routine. One afternoon, my father asked for pencil and paper to do some drawings. When he was asleep, I took them from his hands and looked at them in the dim light. One was a humorous portrait of himself in the hospital bed, a sort of reverse get-well card to the McKees with a heart pierced by an arrow. There was a special message for Gavin McKee, David's 10-year-old son, and a picture of Alfie, their dog. They reminded me of the drawings he'd done for my sons after my wedding. Wait. They reminded me of the drawings he'd done for my sons after my wedding to Tom three years before. Caricatures of people who he'd seen that day with captions like, Hungry person at the wedding and Angry person at the wedding. A psychiatrist began coming around for visits. He was a short, 
rotund man with a halo of curly hair and round glasses, and his air of false conviviality put me off immediately. The first time I had met him, first time I had met him outside the CCU as he was about to interview my father, he asked me what kind of work I did. On learning that I was a counselor, he, he handed me the thick book he was carrying. You'll find this interesting then, he said, smiling, his little round eyes beaming at me. I sat in the hallway and leafed through the book while he spoke with my father. It was on Anorexia Nervosa, a collection of theoretical essays on object relations and eating disorders written in the most impenetrable written in the most impenetrable analytic jargon. On the psychiatrist's second visit to my father, I asked if I could stay in the room. I was curious about the man's techniques. Listening to him, I had to suppress a smile. He was attempting to do with my father exactly what he had tried to do with me. Excuse me. Mm. Establish a relationship. It was a patently obvious, transparent maneuver. I understand you're an artist, the psychiatrist said. My father nodded. Well, what kind of painting do you do, he asked. What kind of painting? (laughs) Of course my father had been asked this question hundreds of times. I could tell he was playing with the doctor, making it difficult for him. Yes, I mean, do you paint abstracts or landscapes or portraits? Are they realistic or what? At times they seem very real to me. Or maybe surrealism, like... Like, what's his name? Salvador Dali? I like his work very much. Do you, my father said. (laughs) Yes, well, Dali is very expressive, isn't he? Symbolic. But what kind of painting do you do? I wouldn't know how to describe it to you, my, my father said wearily. You would have to see it. I'd like to. Is your work in any in any museums? <laughs> My father closed his eyes and didn't answer. I jumped in, unable to resist. This man simply inspired smugness. Have you ever heard of the Museum of Modern Art in New York? I asked sweetly. He nodded. Well, how about the Guggenheim or the Metropolitan Museum of Art? Very impressive, said the psychiatrist said. I could visualize him rubbing his chubby hands together, beaming with satisfaction at the prospect of taking on a famous patient. What he couldn't have known was that my father didn't like to talk about painting, especially his own painting, except with other artists and writers. When he, was, when he was with other people, he wanted to know what they did. And actually, he was quite interested in therapy and psychology, although some, somewhat suspicious of it, too. He had read all of Freud and Hume. We had often discussed the different personality theories related to my work as a counselor. The, sky, the psychiatrist began to question him about the past. Excuse me. Tell me a little about your childhood, Mr. Gustin. Where did you grow up? What did your parents do? Did you have brothers and sisters? My father groaned, Oh God, what does what good does it do at my age 
to resurrect all the old ghosts. Age is hardly a factor in these matters. The psychiatrist drew himself up. Oh, excuse me. And as you and as you so rightly imply, the past can return to haunt you. Yes, well, Philip was silent for a moment. Surely you know what Rilke said on the subject. Who? Rainier Maria Rilke, the great German poet, he said on refusing to enter psychoanalysis. I am afraid if my devils leave me, my angels will take flight as well. I've forgotten the psychiatrist's facetious response, but I remember that my father and I exchanged a look. It was clear to both of us, I think, that this man couldn't be much help beyond prescribing medication and acting as intermediary with the nursing staff. Mm, excuse me. But you understand me, Inge, don't you? My father said when the psychiatrist had left. Talking with you always helps me. If that doctor were half as smart as you, then... He smiled as I blushed. Please. My father was capable of the most shameless flattery. But such moments were few. For the most part, Philip was cantankerous and difficult. By the time I left, a week or so later, to go back to my job and family in Ohio... <sighs> I had very nearly exhausted my fund of patience. I was relieved to go. For days, he'd been begging me to smuggle in cigarettes for him. At first, I'd resisted, but eventually, I gave in after he spoke passionately and with anger about not wanting to make any compromises in his life, even if it killed him which it was evidently going to do if things went on as they had been. His dour-faced cardiologist had made that quite clear. Even if my father would stop smoking and drinking, the doctor wasn't optimistic. After two weeks of caring for my father, of putting up with his moods and petulance, I was furious at this cavalier attitude about smoking. Here we were, trying to keep him alive. It was as if he was determined to do himself in. No compromises, indeed. He might be ready to die, but what about what I was ready for? What about my mother? How could he be so damn selfish? Cigarettes were part of him. They appear everywhere in his work. Almost every photograph of my father I've ever seen shows him smoking. In a painting that hangs in my study now, entitled Language 2, among the familiar symbols of the shoe, the wheel, the manhole cover, the green glass shade, is the image of a cup of coffee with a butt in a little cloud above it that represents, as my father told me, a cup of coffee dreaming of a cigarette. It was he who had given me my first cigarette at 15, only three years before my father's heart attack. Tom and I had finally managed to give up smoking. 
I've been able to relinquish my two-pack-a-day habit only with great difficulty. Now I was something of a crank on the subject. I tried to persuade him to stop, even though I tried to convince him that it could be done, that he could quit. I knew what a 50-year habit of three to four packs a day wouldn't be given up. Wait, I knew that a 50-year habit of three to four packs a day wouldn't be given up unless he really wanted to, which he clearly did not. No compromises, he said. Sick with myself for doing it, I finally gave in and brought him his cigarettes. But I felt like a traitor putting that pack of camels in his hand. I walked off the plane into my husband's arms and wept openly for the first time since I'd left off Ohio. Every muscle in my body ached from the tension of the last two weeks. I was exhausted. My father was discharged from the hospital a couple weeks later. I waited a few days before calling my mother to see how things were, to see how things were going. My last act before leaving had been to hire a practical nurse to help my mother take care of my father after he went home. This was my this was my idea. She was a stand-in for myself, I suppose, to lessen my guilt about leaving my parents in such a bad way. An officious, opinionated woman with her own way of doing things, this nurse had turned out to be exactly the sort of woman my father couldn't stand. <laughs> I smiled at my mother's description, imagining some hefty Brunhilde in a white uniform, bathing my father, him glaring at her. There was an awkward silence on the line. Oh, excuse me. There was an awkward silence on the line before my mother told me, rather apologetically, that they had fired her on the second day. After months of slow recovery, my father was able to begin painting again. The works of that year are small. He hadn't the stamina to stand and paint large canvases. The truth is, I am an old man, he wrote his friend Bill Berkson in August of 1979. I always knew it was a pact and the price to pay. So the hell with it. I can't drive, and the docs say it will be a year anyway to get back to normal if I live right. For example, change my way of life, and who the hell's going to do that? My visit had left an impression. My father painted a picture of me sometime that summer or fall, the only image of me as an adult that exists in his work. Not one of his best efforts, the painting remains blessedly untitled. It may be an affectionate portrait, but it is far from flattering. But why should it, he flatter me? Why should I exempt? What I, why should I be exempt from his honesty? No one else was. His late self-portraits are merciless, and in his last images of my mother, the ravages of her illnesses are dissected and laid bare. Perhaps I should be grateful I didn't draw more of his fire. There in the painting is my curly hair, yes, and a pair of roly-poly shoulders. 
that suggests the extra 20 pounds I carry around. A string of pearls is around my neck. My eyes are inexplicably, inexplicably crossed. What is so disturbing to me about this picture? Why am I always so embarrassed when Tom pulls it out to show to visiting friends? I'm not so thin-skinned and humorless that I can't see that it's funny. It's not a likeness, after all. It's clearly more caricature than portrait. For a long time, my reaction continued to mystify me. Only recently have I understood that what disturbs me about this painting is its precise, ruthless statement of the relationship between the painter and his subject. It is a, it is a companion piece to one of the same size he called Nurse, a portrait of Sue, one of the RNs at the hospital. The only one, as I remember, who had a sense of humor, who could kid my father out of his black moods. With her, I was cast in the role of caretaker. That was who I was to him, no more, nor le no less. And I, and I knew it then, wasn't wasn't that why I had come to Woodstock after all, to take care of him? But still, it hurts to know that he saw it too, so clearly. It cruelly punctures my fantasy. Deflated, I can no longer entertain the hope that somehow, through taking care of my father, I had come to mean more to him, not as his nurse, but as his daughter. At home in Ohio, I became immersed in my life again. Seeing my patients taking care of my own family and turning over the soil in the garden for spring planting, preparing to sow the early seeds. Woodstock, the hospital in Kingston, all of what had happened began gradually to recede as things, as such things do. But some part of me was vigilant all that year always just waiting for the phone, that phone call from Woodstock that inevitable phone call I came that inevitable phone call I knew one day would come <laughs>